0: All right, well, if you have your Bibles, and we hope you do, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 6? As we continue looking at the book of Ephesians here on Sunday morning, we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at the first nine verses together this morning. Let's begin in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that he may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in training and admonish them of the Lord. Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh. With fear and trembling, insincerity of heart, as to Christ, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters do the same thing to them, giving up Threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. When it comes to the family unit, we have seen more and more dismantling of it as the years have gone on. All you have to do is go back and watch some television shows from the 1950s. In fact, the other day I remembered a quote from an episode of the old television show Lassie from the 1950s. So I went on Amazon Prime and I said, oh, I want to see if I can find if Lassie is there. And it was. And I started watching it and it seemed like a foreign world to me. The way that they were interacting with each other between the young man and his mom and the grandpa and so forth. And then the next show in line was, of course, the ever-so-scandalous Leave it to Beaver. (laughs) Uh, I've always asked Dina why she doesn't wear pearls when she cleans the home. Uh, But that was a reflection of the time back then. And, of course, things have dramatically changed today. The dismantling of the home has been the foundational point of the degrading of our society here in the United States of America by far. The Bible stresses very clearly that the family uh, unit is the cornerstone of a sociological makeup of any demographic culture or society. And as we things can see things continue to change we are slipping more and more into the ideas that are given to us by Paul concerning the perilous times that the last days occur. But Paul here, writing to the Ephesian church, Christians, mostly Gentile, who have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, he is now instructing them and continuing his instruction that he began in chapter 1, by first reminding all of the Christians of the blessings that they have in Jesus Christ in heavenly places, moving then on to chapter 2, reminding them of the incredible grace that all of us as Christians have experienced. Moving into chapter 3, he then continues his ideas and tells how this is possible and how grace is able to be uh, shown to us and extended towards us through Christ. As we come to chapter 4, we are reminded that Paul now exhorts us to walk worthy of the calling in which we have been called. And in chapter 5, he now sets the standard that every Christian should walk in love in the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and wisely knowing that the days in which we occupy are evil. Concluding in verse 21 of chapter 5, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Then to illustrate that, or to practically apply that, he then moves on into the excuse me, family. Talking about husbands loving their wives as Christ loves the church. Wives submitting onto their husbands and giving them the due respect that they are required. Which we talked about last week. But now we move in to the area of parenting and children. Now this is by no means an exhaustive look at this subject. The Bible has a lot to say about parenting. And we know that here in the United States, there are a lot of different philosophies concerning the manner in which children should be raised. A lot of the controversy comes around the idea of how children should be disciplined. My dad had no um, confusion or uh, complications about discipline at all. And, uh, well, let's just say that After some discipline, I spent a lot of time standing up. But those days are far gone. But the lack of discipline from parents towards their children has truly contributed to the society in which we see around us. Parents have forgotten that their first and foremost responsibility to their children is to be parents. Not their friend, but their parent. I believe that we do our children an absolute disservice by not fulfilling that role. We are the ones that God will hold accountable for the manner in which we raised our children. And there are many worldly philosophies that Christians have adopted that are contrary to Scripture when it comes to parenting. And the emphasis and the ideas and the priorities that should be contained in the parenting of our child as a Christian husband, wife, mother, or father. Let us understand that the majority of what our children learn is not so much from what we say, it's not what we, are, we taught, but more what they caught by the manner in which we live our lives. We can talk about our relationship with God, the necessity of our faith, the uh, reliability and the infallibility of Scripture, but if we don't live that out in our personal lives, they are not going to take us seriously. And unfortunately, in many cases, parents don't understand that they are not building and training their children up in the Lord, they are actually tearing them down unintentionally by their personal lack of responsibility in walking the way Christ has asked asked them to walk. But Paul begins in verse 1 by addressing children directly, which is very interesting. Paul writing to children reminds us that when this letter was read out loud, as the church gathered, these letters would be read, just like we're reading them here today. Paul anticipated that the children would be listening also. And of course, they would hear that this portion of the letter is being addressed to them. And then undoubtedly, the parents then would take them home and explain to them what Paul meant by this and his apostolic authority. So at this point, if you want to go and run and grab your kids from Sunday school and bring them back so they get it firsthand, no, don't do that. But reading now this letter to the children, he says directly, children, these are children of a Christian home, children that identify themselves as Christians most likely, scholars believe. He says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Some have speculated that the phrase in the Lord means that this is only Instructed to Christian children who have Christian parents. But that's not what this Greek phrase means. When we see it used elsewhere in the New Testament, he is talking about obeying your parents as you would obey the Lord. That's what it's referring to. As you would be obedient to Christ. Now, your obedience to Christ is to be obedient to your parents. Now, at this point, let me specify that he is not condoning the child to do anything that is sinful, but he is asking the child to look to be obedient in all things as they're instructed by their parents. He says, for this is right. This is righteousness. A child growing up in a Christian home, obeying his parents or her parents is righteousness. This is what God would have. This is the design and the architecture of the family in which God has designed. And we've talked about what that looks like a little bit last week and further today. We know that as things deteriorate in our society, as things get more and more complicated, and I love that you know Facebook has added that you know, uh, identity to a relationship, it's complicated, right? Because God has made it very simple we have deviated from that we have believed that uh, the current uh, psychological and uh, secular philosophies are more uh, important and relevant to our current society we've adopted those and we've abandoned God's word when it comes to the family and to our parenting of children To support what Paul says, he now quotes the fifth commandment by stating in verse two, honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise. What is that promise? That he may well uh, be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, as one comedian once said, the parent said to his child, I brought you into this world. I can take you out. But the term long there doesn't mean a duration of time, it means long-lived in the sense of enjoying and, and, and uh, appreciating and also uh, experiencing the best of life. That's what he is saying here. This promise comes with that. And we're going to talk about this in a moment because when we see this uh, commandment quoted specifically in the book of Deuteronomy, we find That God knew that if the land was going to be healthy, if the society moving into the land in which God promised them was going to be healthy, it began within the family structure, the family unit. And so Paul substantiates what he says to children by, of course, referring to the Old Testament, which again makes me, uh, it requires me to state this. I am reading more and more from Christian pastors and scholars, moving away from the Old Testament, and solely adopting the principles and ideas of the New Testament. But you can't read a book of the New Testament without the Old Testament having been quoted. The Old Testament is vital to your understanding of the New Testament. The principles and the, uh, the structure of the Old Testament, the promises, the prophecies, are all imperative to our proper understanding of the New Testament. Paul, Matthew, and so forth, all quote Old Testament passages to substantiate their teaching to the New Testament church. But in this relationship, let us understand that writing to the Gentile world was much different than writing to the Jewish world. And it's a consideration we must keep in mind if we're going to understand what Paul is saying here. The Roman and Greek families were very structured at that time. And the father had complete authority within that family to the point that once a child was born, the child would be placed before the father of either a Roman or Greek family. And the father then could determine if he was going to receive the child as his either son or daughter, or the child could be rejected and sold into uh, another family. And history tells us that in some cases, the child could also be destroyed. This authoritarian model, Paul is going to clarify with the next verse in which he states, because this is not the authority that he wants a Christian father to, act, uh, to uh, display or act upon in the Christian home. But the children in that culture were a complete reflection upon the parents. This often kept children in line, knowing that if they were to do something that bring a reproach upon their parents, it could be very detrimental to them. Being expelled from the family, uh, you know, again, sold in some cases. Trust me, my dad would have sold me, you know, right away if he could have. In some cases, I provoked him so badly. But Paul wanted to make sure that the fathers, the Christian fathers who were Gentiles knew that this was unacceptable. And that the manner in which the father not only received the child, but raised the child was very important to God. And so in verse three, I'm sorry, verse four, excuse me, notice, and you fathers, he directly now addresses dads. Do not provoke your child to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. This was the direction, since the fathers played that role in their child's life, had that authority within the family, Paul felt it necessary to instruct the dads on how to exercise that authority. And there's a lot here to unpack. There's a lot here that we need to see. First, let us understand that the provocation of anger, what does he mean by that? That's a good question. Glad you asked it. Fathers could be very harsh towards their children in that culture. Again, it was part of their authoritarian position. And it was taken very seriously within that culture. And of course, fathers apart from Christ were not governed by the principles of love, training, and admonition. And they could be very harsh towards their kids. The kids would grow angry towards their parents. And Paul says, don't look to this manner of raising your child, always blaming them unfairly unfairly disciplining them, showing favoritism one child above the other, belittling them before their family. As one commentator wrote, he said, the first is that fathers are not to provoke their children to anger. Instead, he commands them to properly care for children in such a way that they will grow in their Christian faith. Fathers are to nourish, that is the word uh, uh, admonition there, their children so that they will be properly cultivated the direction of nourishment is described as being related to the children's discipline and instruction in the lord one historian tells us the greek writer meander the greek writer meander for instance he wrote a father who is always threatening does not receive much reverence And one should correct a child by not hurting him, but persuading him. Another writer wrote at that time, Do not be harsh with your children, but be gentle. Again, that was addressing the cultural unbalance of that time. Again, that authoritarian position was manifested and displayed in that way towards their children. And this was a real problem, and Paul did not want... The Christian church, the Christian family to do that? Does that mean that we should not discipline our children? Does that mean we should not have standards of morality for our children? Does that mean that we should not have a clear definition of right and wrong that we expect our children to live in? And the answer is no, we should have all of those things substantiated. But let's make it clear that throughout the Old Testament there have been a occasions after occasions, incidents after incidents, where the father failed in their developing of their children and it came back and bit them in horrific ways. For example, the Old Testament tells us clearly that David pampered Absalom. And as a result, he set him as a bad example, and the results were tragic as Absalom tried to overthrow his father. When Eli, the priest, failed to discipline his sons and they brought disgrace to Eli's name and the defeat to the nation of Israel by bringing strange fire. In later years, even Isaac pampered Esau in a way that was unhealthy while his wife showed favoritism to Jacob. How did that home go? And Jacob didn't learn from his mistakes but showed favoritism to Joseph when God provincially rescued the lad and made the man... Uh, out of him in Egypt. In each case we see the direct consequences of imp- improperly raising our children. Dads, we have a huge responsibility with our kids. It's enormous. God has given us his word, therefore we need to know his word to properly apply his word to the raising of our children. It is our job's to train up and to encourage and nourish our children in the Lord. One writer wrote, he says, Here we find a balanced growth that includes intellectual, physical, spiritual, and social. Nowhere in the Bible is the training of a child assigned to another agency outside of the home. No matter how they might assist... God looks to the parents for the kind of training that is needed for the children. And dads, it stops with us. And so there are some things that we need to discuss practically. First and foremost, husbands and wives, when it comes to the discipline and the training of their children in the Lord, must be on the same page. We have not fulfilled our responsibility as husbands, as fathers, by simply delegating all of the parental responsibilities to the wife. We have not fulfilled our responsibility before God if we simply think that my only responsibility to my family is to provide financially for it. We have a much larger role that requires us to grow as close to the Lord as possible if we are going to properly train and build up our children in the way of the Lord. That word training there is very important. It means by setting an example, again knowing that much of what the children take away from us is caught by the lives in which we live. And therefore it cannot be governed by do what I say and not what I do. Unfortunately that's become all too popular in our society today. It doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that we're going to not fail at times. We are, and in those places, we should show humility and help them learn from that so when he or she becomes a parent that they can have that same humility with their children. But it's our responsibility, Dad, to train up our children in the way of the Lord. And we must be on the same page, especially when it comes to disciplining our child. The method of discipline to me is secondary to the effectiveness of that discipline. There's been much written about this in Christianity, and I'm sure that you can dive into Amazon and find any book that will support your, perfe- your, your personal position on the issue of discipline. But if you adopt a method that isn't effective, then what good is it? I don't care if it's a detention. I don't care if it's sitting in a corner. I don't care if it's a timeout. I don't care what it is. What I do care about is that mom and dad are on the same page and it's consistently being applied. Where little Johnny or Julie can't go to dad because mom has disciplined them and dad says, whoa, oh, you know, you've always been my favorite. You know, your mom's just a little moody today, you know. You know, just... You know, just stay away from her, go do your thing, and so forth. Man, you have just set a really bad precedent, and vice versa. Your dad had a very hard day at work today, so let's not, let's not you know, don't aggravate him anymore. Yes, he's grounded you for eternity, but I'm sure that he's going to come down from that once he comes down, and so forth. I have seen kids play parents off of one another for decades, And it always ends up disastrous in the long run. It is shocking to me that parents, when they see their kids becoming teenagers, older, and of course at that point, you know, 15, 16, 17, they know everything about everything. And they are not uh, embarrassed to share that with you. It's amazing to me that we often say, I don't know how we ever got here. Well, it all starts when they're young. It really, really does. We have a huge responsibility. We need to take that responsibility seriously. And it's never too late to start. If you're having trouble with parenting, I would encourage you to dive into the Word of God directly and find every passage on parenting that is found and begin to pray and ask the Lord on how you shall apply it into your home. I know that I'm verbally going to make mistakes with my daughter, I know that I'm going to say things that I regret later. I know that as much as I want to be faithful in my discipline of my daughter, I know that at times I still am going to approach the subject in anger, which God would not have us to do. But remember what we were told in the New Testament. That for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives discipline is a manner in which we can train and build up our child and prepare them for the world which is to come. Now, let's be honest, folks. I've talked to many of you. My wife and I have talked about this. We could have never anticipated 22 years ago that our daughter would be facing what she is facing in the world today. I didn't see this on the horizon. Maybe you did. I did not. And so I find that my coaching, my, my influence, my parenting is also continuing even though my daughter's 22. And one of the ways that we can be effective at this point in this stage of the relationship is to remain approachable by our children, to allow them to approach us and to talk with us, that they can work through the issues in which they are facing personally personally Because they are processing things that we have never had to contend with, aren't they? And parenting has absolutely become complicated. Now more than ever, we need to dive into the Word of God. We must be men, because again, I'm addressing fathers because Paul's addressing fathers here. We must be men of the Word of God. And we must pray it through. And it's going to be challenging. It's going to be hard, but... Uh, please let us cease with the idea that now that they're 18 my influence on them my training has ceased no they've become responsible in the world and i think that can be debated you know but that being but that being the key i find that it's continuing on before my dad died as i was thinking back over the course of his life as I was sitting there with him in the hospital, there was a period of my time where I just did not want to hear a word that he had to say. But after my daughter was born and after she was growing and so forth, I found that my dad's wisdom was incredibly helpful and needed. I realized that I could learn from what he had experienced. It was so important to Solomon that his children learn from the wisdom that he had gained And much of that wisdom that he gained was through failure. That he wrote a whole book, the book of Proverbs, to his son. That he would learn from the experiences of his father. We have often been told that if we just simply provide for our children those things that they never had, they will have a better life. But I believe that if we are going to teach them in Help them to understand the value of money. Understand what it requires to support a family. We have to get them into areas where that can be taught, such as working. And not just handing them things. Showing them that there's a value in the necessity that they produce and work for it. If we're going to train up our young men, if we're going to train up our young ladies... That's one area that I think that we have missed today. And I have to admit myself that I often said to myself, I want to give my daughter what I did not have. And as I was praying about it, the Lord laid it on my heart. You're giving her something more than your parents ever gave you. And that is parents who love Jesus Christ. And as Dean and I would pray and pray and pray and continue to pray, we saw that God's hand was working. And here, fathers, do not approach them in a harsh manner, but look to train by example, bringing them up, that is, building them up, and nourish them, admonish them of the Lord. That is the key. One of the concerns that I have is that we have forgotten that as Christian families, one of our primary uh, objectives is to disciple our children in Christ. Helping them see Jesus Christ. We've had parents here at the church that I was so impressed by over the years that saw on the horizon things changing, so they sent their kids to places where they could be instructed in the nature of a biblical worldview. I think that was so wise. And hopefully they now have a foundation that they can draw from in such a confusing and troublesome time. But our discipline, our discipline, our discipleship are two key components to our parenting of our children. Now, if you're a single parent with us today, we understand how difficult it is, and it is very difficult. You often feel that you are alone, that you're wearing two hats in the family, And trying to be both parents for the children. Pray to the Lord that the Lord gives you the strength to do so. I encourage you today. God will not abandon you in the process. God will be there for you. We have testimony after testimony of the number of single moms who have raised kids that just absolutely uh, are wonderful. And so God understands and is gracious in the situations that you find yourself But let us also understand that we have now ample evidence that the role of the father in the child's life is imperative, don't we? Study after study has been done about this. I have seen newspaper articles written about this. And yet, fathers seem to be absent in their children's lives. Oh, no, I'm not saying that they're physically absent. In many cases, they're physically present but spiritually, mentally, and accessibly they're absent from their children's life. And it contributes in the same way as if that person was growing up in a fatherless home. So children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, honoring your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth, and your fathers and, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath but bring them up in the training and and admi- admonition of the lord now he moves to bondservants in verse 5 this is a very complex word we try to simplify this word by bringing it into a cultural understanding of simply s- stating that it resembles today an employee of a company that's partially correct but if we simply see that word as that we lose a lot of the original culture's meaning of the word bond servant the greek word in hebrew is doulas i'm sorry in greek doulas meaning slave slavery was a reality addressed by the new testament in the roman empire they estimate that 8 to 10% of the population of the Roman Empire was in a position of servitude or slavery. And I use both of those words because it's important for our understanding of this because, again, as soon as I say the word slave, we associate it with the history of America and so forth. But this culture didn't uh, see it in that way. They were still property and they still could be sold. And the individuals who owned these people could still do with them as they wanted. But laws were created in Rome and in Greece that governed this. And also, there was different reasoning behind these uh, relationships. This is not one word I like to use, but these situations. So bondservant is a very complicated word. Often the term bondservant is used for a person that was finding themselves in the service of a home and then came to that end of that service uh, because sometimes there was terms set to the uh, amount of years given into service. And at the end of that term, they could personally choose to remain in that household and become a bondservant when they were then uh, pledged themselves to that family and marked with a golden ear- earring stating that they made the personal decision to do that. And that's often how it's taught in New Testament uh, circles and so forth. But in the Roman Empire, when you look at Rome itself and Italy, the demographic of slave goes up exponentially. There are those who estimate that there were about 40% Of the population in Rome that were was in a position of slavery, this position of slavery wasn't just it it wasn't at all constituted by the the nationality or the ethnicity of the person being brought into slavery, like it was in America. It could be for economic reasons. They got into debt. They couldn't pay their debt. So now they're paying their debt off by their personal servanthood within that family's home. Or they were conquered by the Roman Empire and they had their choice of dying or becoming a servant within one of the homes of the Roman population. So there were different reasonings. For example, the person who was doing it to fulfill a debt, it was a length of period of time. So Paul addresses this reality. He's not condoning this reality. Let me say that again. He's addressing this reality because if he as a Christian would have started in the first century trying to release the slaves from slavery, the Roman Empire would have slaughtered the Christian community. It just wasn't a reality that was yet to be brought about. However, though, we know that under the preaching of Whitmer, Whitfield, excuse me, and Wesley, we find a huge movement to abolish slavery both in England and in America, through the Abolitionists. So Christianity played an enormous role in this, but not at the time in which Paul wrote this. So he's addressing these people that are in the realities that they are in. And he says something very interesting to them. He says this. Now, bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling. That's a term that means not living in fear of consequence or what could happen but living in the fear of reverence knowing the position that they hold that is that their master holds within that society and the rights in which they have under the current structure of law but he asks them to do it in a reverent way with sincerity of heart meaning it doing it genuinely now it's interesting One historical document tells us that many slaves in that culture, in that society, were released because they so enthusiastically served within the homes in which they they found themselves. It actually was a path to freedom for many, not all, but many. But he asks him to serve with sincerity, that is genuinely, a sincere heart as to Christ, Notice, over and over and over again, Paul is reminding his recipients that our ultimate accountability is to Jesus Christ. It is him that we truly answer to. It is him who has ultimate authority over us. And if this individual finds himself in this place, at this time, God would have him serve with sincerity, that is, without hypocrisy, with a sincere heart, but also knowing that he or she is doing it under obedience to the Lord. Now again, governed by you know, the overall arching principles of Scripture and the guidance of sin and so forth and righteousness. But this is what Paul is prescribing at this time. When the house churches began in the Roman Empire they usually range between 25 and 45 people. They would gather together, read Scripture, read a letter that they may have, uh, hear word of testimony from the apostles' teaching, and so forth. But out of, say, 45 people, it would be very common for 15 of them to be in this position of servanthood. He goes on in verse 6. He says, don't serve with mere eye service, meaning just doing it when they're looking and then screwing off when they're not as man-pleasers, but as bond-servants of who? Notice again, Paul is directing their attention to the fact that they are truly bond-servants of Jesus Christ, which we all are because we have been bought and paid for, not by precious stones and fine metals, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. This is what Paul would have them to do. The Holy Spirit at that time said that this was the best thing to do at the time. He says, do it with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, realizing that it is God that you serve, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And so he refocuses their attention. Now, this is something that our culture just cannot comprehend. And that's why often when pastors teach on this, they, of course, uh, apply it and give it as an illustration of the relationship between an employee and their boss. The employee or the company that you work for. Now, many of you may feel that you're slaves to your companies. But there is a big difference. And let's all be honest with that, right? If you don't like it, you can quit and... Chick-fil-A is hiring every single day in Schaumburg. We have the privilege of going somewhere else to work, don't we? And now it's becoming even more difficult, isn't it? As private corporations are now mandating that certain vaccines be received or you cannot come on the property or you cannot work for the company. The Department of Justice says this is legal for them to do. And obviously, they believe that this is a way to encourage and to further or overcome hesitancies that some may have concerning the vaccine. But you really haven't read history well if you believe that, right? Because the more and more things are forced upon people, the more and more people rebel against what's being forced upon them. It happens, regardless of your viewpoint on the vaccine or not. Clear education helping us understand, clear communication. How about just ceasing the contradictions from one day to the next? would be incredibly helpful to the American people. But the problem is, is that they have now been given the legal authority to do this, and now you, as an individual, will have to decide if that's something that you want to fight or if it's something that's going to cause you to seek another job. The economic experts that I read all state that they believe we are going to see a seismic shift in employment with roughly 40% of the workforce quitting their jobs in the next three to four months. For many different reasons, not simply due to the vaccine mandate, but for many different reasons. Being at home for the last year, many have sought that, why why in the world would I ever want to go back to an office environment and work for Michael Scott? You know. But now we see that people are now rethinking their lives. That's what happens when you give people a lot of time to contemplate and think of things. So I want to make it clear as a Bible teacher that we have to take the cultural, historical culture into consideration when interpreting these verses. Yes, an application would be semi-appropriate to say that we as employees have to understand that when we go to our places of employment, we are working onto the Lord as Christians. And we have the responsibility of glorifying Him in everything we do in our workplace. Many, you know, don't realize that their workplace could be the greatest place of evangelism that exists if we live for the glory of God. And he doesn't just simply stop there. He continues in verse 9 to address those who were were masters at that time who were Christians. Boy, I bet you they had a dilemma in their heart. And he says to them, you masters, do the same. Oh, that's interesting. He is saying this very clearly, that you have the same responsibility because you in the position that you are are still ultimately responsible to Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. And number one, he says, you need to watch out for the welfare of those who are in servanthood to you. And he says, give up threatening, trying to motivate people in that way, being harsh and treating them in that regard, knowing that your own master, notice that I love how he always brings it back to their relationship to God, also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. God does not favor you over those people who are in servitude to you simply because you are a master and they are a bond servant." God looks at both of you in the exact same way. This was the whole premise behind what our founding fathers wrote, that we are all equal in the sight of God, created in His image. That's what they were getting to. And that's what they wanted to see in our society and play out. And I will tell you, in my personal opinion, the pursuit of of leveled equity across our social system is not going to produce what they think it's going to produce. But he says here very clearly that they were, not, they were to seek the welfare of those individuals. They were not to threaten him. That he as a master was to be submitted unto the Lord and he must not play favorites amongst them. Now there's a couple of things I'd like to leave you with this morning if I may. Number one. In Deuteronomy, when the fifth commandment is mentioned, it says to the people who are listening to him that when you get into the land by observing these things, you will have uh, the society that I, requ- I want and I require, and it, you will be blessed. But notice, if you will, if you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. It is interesting... That as Paul describes the perilous times that are coming, and I believe that are now here, notice how many of these components talk about the deterioration of the designed family that God has cre- that God has set forward. In Second Timothy chapter three verses one through five, Paul writes to Timothy, a young pastor. But know this: that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves. That's not a problem today, is it? Lovers of money. That's not a problem. They'll be boasters and proud and blasphemers. Disobedient to parents. They're unthankful. They're unholy, unloving, unforgiving. slanderers without self-control. Brutal, despisers of good. Traitors, headstrong, haughty. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. One scholar wrote, he said, if the modern version of Ephesians 6, 1 were to be found in an English Bible today, it would read as such. Parents, obey your children, for this will keep them happy and bring peace to your home. But this is contrary to the God's order in nature. When we look at God's design for the family, we must always return to the character of God. And as we stated, the Trinity being discovered in the relationship between the husband and wife, we still see here that the relationship with the children uh, and the relationship with the children to their parents is also found in the Trinity. Remember that Jesus Christ himself prayed that his desire was to glorify his father in heaven, and he did so by obedience. Notice what he says when he prays, and Jesus spoke these words as John writes, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. And three verses later in that same prayer in John 17, Jesus writes, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus saw that the manner that he could glorify God the Father was through his obedience to the will of his Father. Though equal with the Father, he subjected himself to the Father's will. As he prayed in the garden also, not my will, but your will be done, after asking the cup to be passed from his hands. This is the structure that God has designed the the family to work. It is greatly lacking. And we as Christians are the ones that God will hold responsible for this uh, design in which he has given us. It's never too late to start. You may be at a different season with your children, but wherever they are right now, you can become the father that God would have you to be. And also, children, understand that if your mom and dad are sitting with you today in this sanctuary and they are believers in Jesus Christ, you are blessed beyond your wildest dreams. It's something that I only hoped for as a child. And though I am so thankful that my parents accepted the Lord, I sure wish that I would have had them during that time when I needed them to simply go to them and say, Can you pray for me? Can you encourage me? You are so blessed. See it as a blessing and allow God to work in what God has designed.